Today on Loose Headcanon, we will descend beneath Wayne Manor and try to reconcile all of the myriad versions of the Cape Crusader. Today's episode is a bit of an extrapolation on our thesis statement, but a valid exploration. How do we reconcile all the different iterations of a character that have evolved from material that has been around for nearly eight decades? I'm Spencer Sands, a hard-working detective who's grown exhausted by people disappearing in the middle of our conversations. And I'm Brendan Neistad, a dedicated butler whose adopted son refers to me by my first name. And this, this is, is Loose, Loose Headcanon. tries to answer the questions left for us in the great works of fiction. We're not trying to poke holes in plots. Instead, we prefer, with love and great respect, to ponder the stories within stories that make the most sense. Batman was created by Bill Finger and Bob Kane in 1939 for issue 27 of Detective Comics. Bruce Wayne is a playboy philanthropist by day, but by night, he patrols the streets of the fictional Gotham City, working tirelessly to stamp out the crime that ended his parents' life. Over the years, Batman has taken many forms, from hard-boiled detective, to campy crime fighter, to the single greatest martial artist on the planet, to a tortured sociopath only slightly more grounded than the criminals that he fights. When we talk about Batman, it's hard to know which Batman that you're talking about, because there have been so many versions of this character over the last 80 years. No, it really is remarkable just the, the the scope of what Batman encompasses as an idea and how all of these notions can coexist in this one bigger idea of, of the Batman, right? I think what's really interesting about characters like Batman and Superman and Captain America and all of these other ones that have been around for a really long time is that effectively what we're dealing with is modern mythology. No, absolutely. And I think that uh, on this topic, at least today, we'll we'll try to get to the bottom of how one single character can be redefined in so many radically different ways. But I think I think that ultimately, what this does is it is it lets a character exist for for longer in the imagination of the public. Right? This is a way for different creators to come in and put their stamp, put their mark on the material, and for one single character to appeal to an even an even bigger set of people because you have all of these different takes on the one character. I kind of wonder about, like, again, operating off of the notion of modern mythology, when Hercules first showed up on the scene, I'm sure that they were telling a lot of different Hercules stories. And again, I'm using Hercules as an example. Like, I don't know enough about Greek mythology to speak articulately. Maybe there always was just one Hercules story. But my sense is that it's the it's the conglomeration over the course of years that leads to a sort of more cohesive Greek or whatever mythology pantheon, like an established sort of canon within that. And I guess I'm curious... You know, in a hundred years, when we talk about Batman, how will we define that character? Which one of these versions, or what combination of these versions, will it be that sort of is cemented? One one thing to to keep in mind is that the difference between something like Hercules, where it is more rooted in oral tradition and these stories that people would tell each other and remix, and that you know, you have this centuries long game of telephone, different storytellers put their different spin on it. There are similarities with that and with 
uh, Batman, but I think that something like Batman that is a property that is owned by a company, they're always trying to make sure that there is some form of consistency. And so I, I, I wonder if the idea that you can own a character versus a character being owned by the storytellers themselves and anybody that learns the story is now themselves a storyteller. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if maybe there's a greater degree of consistency uh, with these, uh, these wholly owned characters that are owned by you know, a company like Disney or WB, whoever it is. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if maybe that means that there's a little less wiggle room. But I think that Batman is a really good uh, demonstration of how many different kinds of interpretations you can have. Because from being kind of a lightly comic character to being a hard-boiled character to being... And just, just the entire gamut of these different takes on Batman, whether it's, uh, whether it's kind of surreal or steampunk, you know, you still do have some strong underlying consistencies. Oh, absolutely. He needs to have lost his parents. He needs to, he needs to be, you know, motivated. It has to come from within that he wants to uh, fight the crime. I think there's something interesting in the point you made about these being owned properties is so like, as long as those capitalist structures are in place, I think you're correct. But what happens if uh, the copyright lapses? You know, what happens if mm-hmm. what happens if the character like this enters the public domain? You know, like a Sherlock Holmes or a Tarzan or a John Carter of Mars. You know, these sort of classic, like um, literary heroes of 150 years ago. Will we then see it? level out or will will there still be a range of Batman interpretation so what I need to have happen is like total capitalist collapse and then like in 50 years we can pick up where we left off on this yeah right because if giant if giant corporations don't own our favorite characters then we can finally own our favorite characters and everybody everybody can aside from you know the fan fiction that already takes place you know it really is yours to do with what you please. I'm so glad that Batman and Catwoman are getting married because I've been shipping them for a long time. See, I can <laughs> s- I can speak young person. I had to look up what that means, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'm really proud of myself for using a reliable source like Urban Dictionary to understand that terminology. Well, you know, either either you're you're born into a world with uh, Tumblr or you're not. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, fan fiction is, I think, the most vibrant modern art form. <laughs> I mean, like, we can joke all we want about fan fiction, but literally book deals and film deals and millions upon millions of dollars have been won by way of fan fiction. It is, you know, it is a completely legitimate entry point for a lot of fans, not only to interact with their favorite properties, but also for fledgling writers to experiment with other people's characters before creating their own, um... Uh, that's that's basically how the Twilight books happen, as I understand it. They started off as I don't know, maybe like Harry Potter fanfic or something. It was it was. I think Twilight was actually, if I'm remembering this, it's weird that we're not experts on this. <laughs> I think Twilight was the original. I think Fifty Shades of Grey was a Twilight fanfic. Oh, okay, gotcha. But don't quote me. So anyway, Batman. <laughs> So, like, the first versions of Batman, like the original Bill Finger, Bob Kane, Batman, is this kind of, like, pulp hero, and, you know, like, there's a pistol involved, which is interesting given that, like, later mythology of the Batman stories would make the pistol, like, I would never use a gun because a gun killed my parents. That, like, that, that is, like, a very, like, antithetical shift that occurs, but I really like the the first look of Batman, and I like... 
I like that sort of kind of weird extrapolation on a detective story that is these early Batman comics. I've not read a ton of them. I think I've read the um, the first issue where he like kills the Joker very casually, <laughs> very break, briefly a long time ago. <laughs> but also the Joker is an interesting one because that is another character within this pantheon that has just undergone radical shifts over the years. Mm-hmm. I mean... You have you have the like you know <laughs> I think you could break the Joker down into like Caesar Romero Jack Nicholson uh, you basically go by actor uh, Heath Ledger and Jared Leto and sort of like see these different versions of the Joker from like oh I'm gonna put a, a, a plastic fish with a Joker face on it and that'll teach you Batman to like I'm gonna slice your face open so that you smile for the rest of your life uh, yeah another character that really ranges but I, if I'm remembering my like his story right uh i do believe the joker was killed at the end of the first issue that's a that's a pretty quick death for a character that would you know become just about as definitive of the property as the hero yeah but maybe maybe that says something about about the you know the the main character batman and his main foe is that they both need to be able to change and shift with the times in order to remain appealing and relevant uh absolutely absolutely I guess with the Joker more so than Batman, there are versions of the Joker that I just deeply don't like. Like, I'm sort of willing to go along for the ride on most iterations of Batman, but with the Joker, the Joker is, like, very easily taken too far or not far enough for my taste, and I, I like, immediately lose interest in it. You know that he's based on uh, on the, the character from uh, The Man Who Laughs, right? You've seen, like, the original, like, the picture from the movie? Yeah, yeah, I think that I have. I haven't seen the film itself, but I'm, I'm familiar with that one image. Oh, okay, so I was mistaken. Joker doesn't show up in the first issue of uh, that Batman shows up in, which is Detective Comics 27. He comes out about a year later in uh, spring of 1940 with Batman number one. And he is initially described as a remorseless serial killer. And the Joker Venom thing has been there right from the get-go. Uh, and I was mistaken as well. The character was intended to be killed in his second appearance in Batman number one. And so interestingly enough, uh, Bill Finger thought that having reoccurring characters, uh, like reoccurring villains, would make Batman appear inept. <laughs> but so obviously that did not happen because... But I feel like, I feel like that's become one of the, one of the hallmark uh, Batman characteristics is that uh, the rogues gallery, you know, it's a revolving door of people leaving and coming back. Um, and there are so many, you know, really memorable villains there that when, you know, when Penguin comes back or when Riddler comes back, you know, you're 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 ready for that new confrontation to happen. Well, and it also brings up one of the sort of classic, like, modern retellings of the Batman character, um, or, like, things that, like, reoccurring sort of themes in the Batman characters is, like, if Batman was willing to just kill these guys, he probably would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives, but he doesn't. Like, Batman's, like, hard no-kill policy keeps these guys rocking and rolling. That's one thing that has always been interesting to me is that I feel like every Batman story that has him butting heads with the police brings up that he's a vigilante, but I feel like if he were really a vigilante that they had to worry about, he wouldn't be cooperating with them nearly as much as he does a lot of the time. Well, also, I don't... I, I'm poor, poor Jim Gordon. Um, I wonder how yeah. much Jim is aware of his no-kill policy. Like, it's probably better for Batman as a, like, crime fighter... If people think that he does kill people, it's certainly scarier. That that helps his you know his persona, his character get out there. Yeah, it's good for his brand. 
And so the fact that he doesn't lets every criminal think they got off lucky. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Again, we are we, <laughs> we are building our own headcanon for a character who's had many people uh, mess around with that. But so uh, I like I like the initial Batman a lot. I like that sort of gritty crime fighter. I think that's what's always kind of appealed to me about the character of Batman. It's not all of the not all of the gadgets and all the tricky stuff, but like using fear as a tactic and all of that. Like I think that's neat. I think it's very interesting. You brought up a lot of similar characters. Batman was really like tapping into the zeitgeist that had already been tapped into at that point with, you know, the shadow and, you know, who are, who are some other ones? Like, I guess Green Hornet was a little bit later, but you have the Phantom. I, I'm wondering what it is compared to those characters that has given Batman such longevity because it was not, he was not the first, you know, kind of detective, well, well off vigilante hero, right? So I'm, I'm I'm wondering what it is what it is that's given this particular take on all of these elements legs. I mean, it, it, do people just like bats a lot more than anything? <laughs> that's else? accurate. Bats are very popular animals. Um, I think that it's Batman. I think it is his adaptability. Um, I think it is that he can, like as we'll see as we move through Batman's history, that he can be both this gritty crime fighter, but also tap into the like kung fu movie sort of craze when he goes, you know ultimate martial artist or be reflective of like more sort of traditional superhero norms when he's palling around the justice league or whatever i think that i think that is a big thing that superheroes appeal to us but batman is kind of unique among superheroes too in that batman is supposed to be a guy like at his core he's supposed to be a human being that is probably helpful in making sure that we see something aspirational in batman we look at him and go well he tried really hard Um, And he achieved all of this. I mean, he had every advantage to get started. But when you look at Superman, he's from another planet. And so, like, he does good and Superman's wonderful. But he has every, he has, like, every genetic advantage in accomplishing his miracles. You know, Spider-Man, like, Peter Parker would have had a relatively innocuous life, I suspect, had it not been for some sort of miraculous event. But Batman's miraculous event is, like, super tragedy. And he funnels that yeah. tragedy into something that, depending on who's writing it, is either really positive or really maladjusted. <laughs> uh, let's jump forward in Batman's history a little bit, because Batman is going to be one of the only characters that actually survives, uh, like superhero characters that goes uninterrupted uh, through the 1950s. Because you have mm-hmm. the whole, like, uh, the you know, the same time the McCarthy trials are going on, you have the, the, the persecution of comic books due to the, the book Seduction of Innocent, uh, Seduction of the Innocent, uh, which, you know, painted superheroes and comic books in general as instilling, like, really awful morals in kids and creating, like, uh, ethically bankrupt people and Batman and Robin's you know, supposedly homosexual relationship that was problematic, but <laughs> I don't know. But so, yeah, the Batman and Robin are accused of, of having this homosexual relationship, so we see characters uh, be brought in to, like, Batwoman and Batgirl are brought in to provide romantic interest for both members of the dynamic duo. Um, but it really shifts from being this, like, gritty crime-fighting stuff to more science fiction-y, you know, you get Batmite, you get kind of wackier adventures like i have an amazing anthology book that dc put out called their greatest imaginary tales and it has a lot of this silver age uh, it's like pre-silver age but this sort of 1950s batman where batman is inventing things that allow him to like view his own dreams and like that sort of really goofy wonderful 
comic book stuff, like very much mirroring uh, the Superman stuff. Uh, I think Robin is actually a really interesting character to bring up and to talk about because of how Robin has become such an important part of this mythology. Right away, you have you have a mirrored story. So Dick Grayson uh, is an acrobat, and he loses his parents in an acrobatics accident uh, orchestrated by the mob. And Bruce Wayne takes him under his wing and teaches him crime fighting and makes him Robin, and they go on wacky adventures together. But I think what's really interesting about Robin is sort of how, at least in like the modern context, how Robin gets portrayed as having suffered the same tragedy as Bruce Wayne, but having coped with it much, much more adaptively. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder what that says about the psychology between somebody who is an adult and who has had to live with maybe maybe a, a bitter loss for a long for a longer time and the disposition of a child who might be able to bounce back a lot faster and you know find stable footing whereas you know if you're if you're left to to dwell like Bruce Wayne is um, depending on the retelling you know where he where he was after his parents died being taken care of by Alfred or going to school overseas or what whatever whatever version you have uh, in your own head canon uh, maybe 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 that says something about about coping strategies and Robin Robin uh, is just a lot more resilient than Bruce Wayne was well there's also something interesting because in all the tellings like r- as soon as his parents die Bruce Wayne has a lot of agency over what happens next so he concocts this plan right to become a creature of the night and all of that stuff and in a lot of retellings you see uh, alfred trying to get in the way of that and trying to normalize his existence but ultimately bruce kind of wins the day <laughs> so maybe there's something to be said for young children are not ready to make life decisions <laughs> whereas robin is brought into these bad life decisions uh, yeah that's a really good point but he's not making them on his own We'll get to it later, but mm-hmm. I, I'm really interested in the Batman-Robin relationship because Robin tempers Batman in a really interesting way. And a lot of modern writers have explored this possibility that without Robin, Bruce Wayne would potentially like really descend into the Batman persona. Yeah, I'm, and I'm actually really interested in how the dynamic changes when you get to an interpretation like, like Batman Beyond where it's not a sidekick. It is the, the heir to the, to the crown, so to speak, right? Um, and how that dynamic changes from Bruce to Dick and mm-hmm. Bruce to Terry. Um, boy, we should talk about Batman Beyond because that show's really great. I, I will say, though, that this it era, is. this sort of 1950s Batman and Robin, does little for me. It's not something that is interesting to me. And it's fun, and comics are fun, so I'm a fan of it. But it, it's it feels so disconnected from the part of the Batman mythos that speak to me that it's like hard for me to get on board with. Yeah, you know, I, I, I hadn't even considered the effect, the impact that the comics code had on something like Batman, where it did it did have its origins in something that was, you know, borderline noir, more mystery detective oriented. And you can definitely see that tonal shift. I think the, the, what's interesting is the sort of the relationship between the Batman show that at least a lot of our parents' generation like used as a way to interact with Batman for the first time and the Batman comics. The Batman mm-hmm. show, the Adam West show, is like is is a very campy take on this character, and it's comedic and it's it's <laughs> very low stakes by sort of our modern Batman uh, sensibilities. You know, it, it, I didn't realize that the show only ran for like two years. It is not a long-lived TV show. It had such a tremendous impact on people who were the right age, and uh, you know, it, for for when it was on, it was incredibly popular. 
And I think that it really shaded the the way that people thought of Batman for a really long time. Argu- arguably until, at, at very least, you know, the, the Dark Knight Returns. But for most people, I feel like until 1989, with Tim Burton's Batman, that was what they thought of when they thought of Batman. Um, I think it's interesting that even after Tim Burton's Batman, we see the Joel Schumacher films. I'm getting the name right, correct? Yeah, it's Schumacher. Those films are a meditation on the 60s show. Oh, without a doubt. And... It, it totally shows um, that <clears throat> something something like Batman and Robin is uh, just so over the top. You have, you know, terrible puns. You have all of these, like, Batman practically winks at the camera. He uses a, bat, he uses a Batman credit card at one point, which, if uh, the 1966 show had happened during the 90s, would totally be something that happened on that show, right? 100%. You know, that's, that's, that's along the lines of the bat shark repellent gag. Gag is probably the best word to describe that. Yeah, it's, it's again, it's not my Batman. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like the Star Trek you grow up with or the bond that you grow up with is, in a lot of ways, your bond or your Star Trek. Like, I will never convince my parents that Picard is a patently better captain than Kirk is. And that's fine. <laughs> I've come to terms with that. That Batman and the Batman that is such a part of, like, my interpretation of the character are, are very much at odds. And I think it's fun sometimes to bring in homages to that and to like acknowledge that that exists but it it just doesn't just doesn't really gel with how i like the character so then we get the like um the sort of more sort of a return to noir after the film is canceled with artists like and i'm blanking on the name which is bad a younger me who read more comic books would be really frustrated right now you idiot you know this why okay dennis o'neill and neil adams come in and this is like late 60s 1969 they come in and they tried to really push the character away from the tv show and go back to the so, sort of noir themes and again wikipedia you're the best source ever in the whole world this is sort of the the era where we at least for me start to see sort of a modern ish batman like sort of a return to that kind of like street level character mm-hmm. which which i really like and, you know, Neil Adams' art is so dynamic, that is also really hard to argue with. I think it suits Batman really, really well. My first exposure to Neil Adams was in the X-Men, and it's, I don't know, I like the dynamicness of his art. Mm-hmm. And it's more grounded human forms, it's less uh, It's less sort of uh, cartooned images, and yeah. I think that's fun. I think it suits Batman at this time really, really well. for me sort of big shift in the batman mythos comes in the 80s with frank miller's take uh, on the character via uh, the dark knight returns which is a really great story and is a really like i've read that one a lot because it's it's very compelling but in a lot of ways it is it, it and the fan fiction is not the right word because it is such a big part of the mythos but this was uh this was a time when comic book companies were a little bit more willing to tell stories that didn't fit into canon, that sort of existed outside of the main reality. Yeah. And so The Dark Knight Returns portrays this, like, this possible example of what happened... I don't think it's canon, but this possible example of what happens to Batman 50, like 50 years into his life. And it shapes the modern interpretation of Batman so aggressively for such a long time. I think that it shaped, it shaped you know, the entire 
the tra- trajectory of the comics industry for a really long time too because yeah. the success of that one title um, and then subsequent Frank Miller titles, I think, really uh, changed um, and redefined what what the readership expected um, out of a comic, something that was grittier and more violent and darker. And I think that it also, you know, we're still living under that shadow, right? That that one title changed comics uh, from now fr- from now until you know whenever whenever we decide that we want like maybe like more lighthearted like goofy stuff again, and that becomes the norm. It even it even predates stuff like Old Man Logan, right? You have the old grizzled Batman in that book, uh, and he's such a weirdo. I, I never thought about those two as being very like mirror image. That's very accurate. Yeah, there's there's so many different ideas in there, you, and then you're playing around with the idea of the Robin figure in that being uh, a girl instead of a boy, and so you have that that predates the idea of a woman as Thor instead of a man, and I think that there's there's a lot of stuff in there, including the 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 weird '80s social commentary talking about the media. You know, I think I think that for better or worse, we're there's there's comics before Dark Knight Returns and there's comics after Dark Knight Returns, right? Well, it's weird because it feels like Miller lays a lot of like groundwork for that tone in his Daredevil stuff that he did uh, at Marvel before that, mm-hmm. and like those are books that have very much shaped that character as well. Absolutely, I think that it is the Dark Knight Returns that really like sort of sets that tone. I think you're accurate, and it's a it's a it's an interesting story, and it it's very dynamic. The way he draws Batman, the physicality of the characters really really kind of different than no he's like he's like he has tree trunks for limbs he's like so built right he looks like a he looks like a human tank well so when you compare that to like the the neil adams sort of live batman from a few years prior it's it feels like oppositional it feels very much Mm -hmm. at odds yeah i mean dystopian um his sort of like the the gang of mutants is so iconic for me in that book um, and like the notion of Batman riding a horse, which like doesn't seem like it should work, but like it really works for me. This idea that Batman is so like such a back to basics guy that whatever you give him, he will make a thing and he will fight crime with it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's it's hard to argue with the Dark Knight Returns. It is iconically Batman, and it shapes a lot of what we will see with Batman. I mean, not long after that, we get the. Um, we get the Tim Burton films, the 1989 Tim Burton movie, uh, which is interesting. I mean, I haven't watched it in a minute, but I remember the first one relatively fondly. Uh, Jack Nicholson's Joker is fairly iconic, and I feel like Michael Keaton balances the Batman-Bruce Wayne dynamic in a, in, in a more nuanced way than a lot of other actors have. I think that a lot of people want the Joker to be a fully formed character when he appears on screen. Like, the Joker is just the Joker. Don't worry about where he came from. And I feel like Christopher Nolan played around with that idea really well, where Joker has these conflicting tales of where he got his scars, right? Even he wants you to think that that he has all these different origins, that he came from all these different places, and you never find out exactly who he was. And I think that the, the 1989 film makes a concession to that, in making the Joker an actual gangster before, you know, a horrible accident happens to him and then he becomes the Joker. But more importantly, a, a gangster who kills Bruce Wayne's parents. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is... Redcon. Yeah, it is. But again, that's the sort of the joy of film and interpretation through film. Uh, it's not necessarily how I picture the Joker-Batman relationship. A, the Joker is 
at least 10 years older than Batman. But also, it's something that kind of frustrates me with a lot of like modern comic book movies is the idea that the, the villain and the hero have to have a history. Yes, they have similar or the same origin, right? Well, so like, like, let's, let's talk about Michael Keaton for a second. I really like Michael Keaton <laughs> a lot. Um, his work as the Vulture um, in Spider-Man, he was so compelling in that film. I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to. I'm going to have to wait until it comes out. But I'm. I'm very excited to check it out finally. Uh, without getting too deep into spoilers, he he has this like kind of volatility and this sort of quickness of turning that is really fun. And um, in the same way that like the Bruce Wayne that we see in the Tim Burton 1989 film like is like joking around with. Um, uh, Vicky Vale. Thank you so much. The, the same way that Bruce Wayne is like joking around with Vicky Vale, but then he's Batman. Like. That, that that change in personality is very like very obvious and very fun. Um, I will I feel like the second Tim Burton movie shifts. Like Batman is still Batman, but the world of Gotham gets stranger. I mean Gotham is always a character in the Batman mythos, right? It's you know we, there's the sort of like classic notion that Gotham and Metropolis sort of represent both sides of man, like New York, right? Like the sort of like this glimmering city of hope and this city that is, you know, full of problems, right? Yeah, just underneath the surface, there's all of this madness lurking. Um, and so it's interesting to see see this, like the character of Gotham uh, portrayed differently. But I feel like the Gotham in the second Tim Burton movie is a much less restrained Gotham. Um, it's, a, it's a much more surrealist Gotham. And Danny DeVito's Penguin, I mean, I, I like Danny DeVito <laughs> at all. But Danny DeVito's Penguin is is maniacal and wonderful, and like the sort of chaos that he lets loose on this city is is just really wonderfully bizarre. And then we we get into the Schumacher Batman's, which I have not seen in a long time. But I will be very honest, as a little kid, I liked them. I liked them a lot. They were colorful and fun and exciting. And no, Batman is not a brooding, tortured you know guy, but the world is shiny and he's got lots of cool toys and i say what you will i like arnold schwarzenegger's mr freeze i mean he's you know he's i i enjoy arnold when he's playing a more comedic character and this is an example of that and i think that a lot of people like to make fun of of him or they like to make fun of the material uh if you're looking if you're looking for christopher nolan's batman in Joel Schumacher's Batman, they are completely different interpretations. Absolutely. And even from, you know, even from the 89 Burton to uh, Batman and Robin, there's there's a there's a wide chasm in between the tones of those two movies. Absolutely. Well, and then simultaneous to both of those, you have the the Batman cartoon series, the the Bruce Tim Paul Dini uh, cartoon series going on. And if I think about, like, what is the source material for me that I go back to that understands Batman and my, like, lines up with my understanding of the character, it's that cartoon. Oh, I totally agree with that. It simultaneously uh, recharges Batman for the future and also takes it back to its roots. I love the vaguely 1930s look, all of the cars and all of the buildings. Everything has this nice uh, deco appearance to it even the character designs are just like everything is perfectly suited for that world Um, yeah i love love the opening the opening is amazing yeah the sky is always red you have these big like police zeppelins flying around it's so (laughs) that practical piece of police technology Mm -hmm. i i love it and I, i think for me and probably for a lot of people in our age bracket that is a very definitive moment in batman history 
and there have been other Batman animated series that were like were good and were interesting. You have um, the Batman, which was fun and took a lot more chances with the character, um, which is always interesting to me when we have reinterpretations of character, which I'm generally pro. I like the idea that a character can be viewed through a different lens. But I think you run the risk of alienating a fan base if you take chances. Yeah, you need you need some of those core elements to still be there. Yeah, and so like the way that they played around in that, I think for some people was a little too much. But it's on Netflix, or it was on Netflix. It's a fun watch. Similarly, Batman: The Brave and the Bold, like a a a, a oh my god, is a, such a wonderful uh, homage to this like the campy '60s stuff while being fun and while playing with all of these DC characters that never were going to get any screen time ever. If you have not watched The Brave and the Bold, I mean, don't go into it expecting The Killing Joke or expecting The Dark Knight Returns because you will be disappointed. No, but it's nice to see them return to some of those ideas that, uh, you know, maybe weren't in vogue in the 90s or 2000s and exploring them in a different form like animation you know, as as much as I love the the '90s Batman animated series, and uh, you know, uh, it's it's so on point, and it's told some of the best Batman stories, or in some cases, it's retold and reinterpreted. Um, but that was a dark show for kids. For you kids, know? yeah, very serious, very very serious. I mean, simultaneously, Fox also had the X Men animated series, which was casually dealing with the genocide of a people. <laughs> yeah, but it was really colorful and it had that great, you know, rockin' theme song. It did have a really good. I can it's it's playing in my mind right now. Oh yeah. Uh some another like really important sort of Batman comic at least in people's uh understanding of his dynamic with the Joker is Alan Moore and Brian Boland's The Killing Joke. Yeah, it's a it's it's a short comic that really had big ramifications on uh, particularly the Joker, right? Uh, yeah, but also Batman's, like, yes, definitely on the Joker because it, without saying it, it alludes to his origin more than we ever had really had the Joker's origin alluded to, mm-hmm. um, for better or for worse. And I could be misquoting, but I I feel like I read someplace that, um, that the creator's later on felt like they they gave too much away there or that uh, i'm probably misquoting it um in a 2000 interview moore said i don't think it's a very good book it's not saying anything very interesting he elaborated the killing joke is a story about batman and the joker it isn't about anything that you're ever going to encounter in real life because batman and joker are not like any human beings that have ever lived so there's no important human information being imparted yeah it's something that i thought was clumsy misjudged and had no real human importance it was just about a couple of licensed dc characters that didn't really relate to the real world in any way that sounds like some pretty some pretty classic uh grumpy old man more interpretation of his own work i'm looking for the stuff about the joker's origin um, there's also, the book gets, a gets, I think, a fair, um, criticism for the way that Barbara Gordon is treated in it because she is crippled by the Joker who shoots her just right through the spine and then takes it like effectively takes advantage of her. I mean, I don't know if that, how much is implied. I do not remember, but she is, you know, stripped naked and photographed to torture her father with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's an important book and it's an interesting book, but I think it, for me, it gives too much away. I for I like the Joker better if there is no origin to him, like what you were talking about, where he wants to sow that sort of discord, like we see in the Nolan version, 
I think when we try to nail the Joker's origin down, I think it becomes less interesting. Yeah, I think I think that the character needs to be chaos personified, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're never you're never really sure what's going to happen next. There's some sort of plan in motion, but ideally, you know, a good Joker story, uh, it will undermine your expectations, and you'll end up like totally surprised at what happens because of what Joker's been able to figure out. You know, he's who is who is it that says that the Joker is like hyper intelligent, like he's playing three dimensional chess. Uh, that comes from. Uh, is that Grant Morrison? Yeah, that's Grant Morrison's uh, Arkham Asylum. Okay. Which is a, another really interesting interpretation, not of just Batman, but all of the Batman characters, and sort of this look into into this insane asylum where Batman keeps sending these people that never seem to get rehabilitated. And it's really it's interesting, but yeah. So the argument there comes that Joker is hyper sane. Like, his brain is beyond adapted to deal with just the the overwhelming amount of information that a modern, like, uh, urban environment just shoves in your face, mm-hmm. or metropolitan environment shoves in your face. And his adaptability and his mercurial nature are reflective of his just constant sort of, like, personal evolution to navigate this world, which... <laughs> is weird and interesting and very Grant Morrison. Very Grant Morrison, yeah. Uh, which is, that is like the highest compliment I can give. I I really like what Grant Morrison's done with the character uh, in his different times that he's interacted with it. He actually did one of my favorite runs on the series, which is where Batman has died and Dick Grayson takes over as Batman. So the former Robin has come full circle to take over the role of, you know, the Dark Knight. But his Robin is Bruce Wayne's son with the League of Assassins leader's daughter, Talia al Ghul. So you have Damian Wayne, who was raised by, like, killer assassin ninjas. And so he's he's the... He, uh, it's uh, I love the dichotomy, because you have Dick, who is, like, the most well-adjusted superhero imaginable, Dick Grayson. Um, and his Batman, it isn't the campy 60s, but it's a much more positive Batman, because it's, it's Dick behind the cowl. Yeah. And if, like, if I'm picturing what he would sound like, he's not using the, don't pray to God, pray to me. Like, I don't, I'm not seeing that happening. Yeah, I'm yeah. seeing, like, him speaking like a person. Uh, but then his Robin is is the darkness, right? So if, if the, the concept of Robin as a character is to temper Batman and, you know, kind of pull him back towards center away from this darkness, in this reinterpretation, you have this kind of, like, uh, a, a more adjusted superhero Batman being pulled back towards sort of the grittiness by his ten-year-old sidekick. Yeah, that's a really that's a really clever inversion of the, the you know the two the two roles that the characters would normally play, right? I loved it, and it didn't last long enough, which is how I feel about all legacy superhero characters, with the exception of well, even Wally West. Wally West got to be the Flash for like twenty-five years, and they took that away from him, and that's not okay with me. But um, <laughs> we can talk about legacy superheroes another day. But yeah, I I, I like when we see these sort of the sort of shift in that. And I, I think today our understanding of Batman is inexorably tied to uh, Christopher Nolan's three films. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, so like th- what I just did, the don't pray to God, pray to me. That's the Batman voice. Yeah, that's that comes, and, that idea comes straight from Nolan and, you know, uh, Christian Bale's interpretation of Batman and Bruce Wayne, which uh, I don't, I don't disagree with. I think he would try to mask his voice. Kevin Conway's uh, Batman voice is, again, the sound of Batman for me. I don't dislike the Christian Bale Batman voice because it is it does seem sort of connected to a reality. 
And it's weird to think about those. It's definitely a practical consideration because the I think especially the first film dwells on Batman as an image and how Batman, how, how Bruce taps into his own fear of bats in order to make his persona as Batman scary. And the voice goes along with that. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting to think of those as like the grounded interpretation of Batman. Everything in those films has to, at least in some capacity, connect back to like an actuality. Like, you know, his cape is parachute materials that is that becomes rigid through static electricity, and his grappling gun is, you know, developed for, you know, special forces teams and the, the even the Batmobile, which I mean we could just talk about the Batmobile for probably an entire episode. But the tumbler, oh, yeah, that's you know that's that's another thing that gets reinterpreted over and over again to suit the times, right? I think the answer is definitely convertible. Yeah, you gotta, you can jump out the most easily. That's accurate. Um, but uh, I both I both really like and sometimes sometimes like I, I want my superheroes to feel super, and because because Batman in that world is is pretty grounded, there's sort of a conflict there. Like Batman should always be a human. And Batman should always have technology that's kind of within reach. Like, Iron Man, the technology needs to feel mystical to me. It needs to be, like, at the absolute outer edges of what could conceivably be possible without getting into magic. But Batman stuff shouldn't feel quite that far. And I think, for the most part, the the Nolan films keep the Batman technology kind of within that realm. Yeah, I mean, those are hard films to argue with. They're very, very compelling. I think uh, Heath Ledger's Joker has, in a lot of ways, become sort of like the the Joker as we understand it. Certainly, as a as a modern t- interpretation of the Joker, I think that Nolan and Ledger redefined the character for today's audiences, and it it really it really hit a nerve. Yeah, absolutely. Again, that mercurial multiple tellings. The I, mean, I think it's very much a reflection of the comic book market too. That it is a much darker Joker than like at least even just visually a darker joker than we're accustomed to like even when the joker has done terrible things like beat a robin to death with a crowbar which it is important to note the fans voted for that they had to call in right that was that was the deal they had to call in yeah which oh boy to be to be in that pitch meeting so guys we're thinking of getting rid of jason todd how should we uh should we have everybody call in and decide whether or not a teenage boy gets beaten to death with a crowbar okay cool yeah let's do that (laughs) (laughs) I bet I bet the conversation was like, no, people are good. People will not let that happen. But, I mean, we'll give them the option. The illusion of choice is important. Oh, no, what? They said yes? Terrible. Even back then, and, comic, comic fans liked a good troll. Oh, I, apparently. I mean, you know, you, you give people the option and they'll go too far with it. I, if I'm remembering my Batman history correct, which I have been not doing all day, um, I think the vote was really, really close. Well, that's good. That gives me more faith in humanity. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the margin of voting was 28 votes. Wow. Uh, let's see if we have the total number of votes. I wonder if there's anybody who feels bad about that, like, later in life. Okay. Over 10,000 votes were cast, which is really not that many votes, with uh, the vote being uh, 5,343 in favor of the death and 5,271 being against it, which is not 28 votes, by the way. <laughs> so it was close, but... Yeah, just just a, a strange a strange moment in in comic history that we gave people the opportunity to vote as to whether or not a teenager would live or die. I feel like with the internet that would get, you know, there would be millions of votes on something like there that. There would be millions of votes and it would it would be either for some some third party write-in option or for him to die. There would be a, a fun groundswell movement for him to die really violently, which is sad. 
Yeah, bizarre. I I I mean again, we could have a whole we could have a whole conversation around Robins, but I'm I know how I would have voted Brendan. Would you would you have taken pity on on uh, everybody's least favorite Robin? Uh you're yeah, yeah, of course. He's mm, Is he everybody's least favorite? I think kid like people our age, we grew up with uh Tim Drake who was very was very much like a like a mirror Batman. He was like the super detective even as a kid. Yeah, that was his whole thing. Was that Tim Drake figured out that Batman was Bruce Wayne, and then goes to him and says, "Hey, guess what? I figured you out." It's like what got me. Whereas Jason Todd was stealing the tires off of the Batmobile when Batman's like, "Wait a minute." Uh, whereas Damian Wayne thinks he's entitled to it because his dad is Batman, and I think he's right. And then you've got uh, Dick Grayson, whose parents fell off of trapeze because of acid. So, like, I don't know. I mean, that's not fair. There's actually more Robins than that. You've got the um, the Dark Knight Returns Robin. And boy, my memory is such a mess today. Why can I not think of her name? Uh, Carrie Kelly. Uh, the Carrie Kelly Robin. She, I mean, she only really appears in the Dark Knight Returns. Uh, but then you've got Stephanie Brown, who takes on the role. She was the spoiler um, in 90s. Batman comics, and she was Robin for a few issues. Um, there's a, there's a lot of Robins, so to say that Jason is the least favorite at the time of the voting, I suppose he would be because there was only two, and Dick Grayson is a superhero in his own right. But yeah, people are gross. Um, where is Batman for us right now in this moment in time? Yeah, so like, if what is the Batman of your head canon? I feel like the purest Batman has got to be the animated series Batman, but I'm that that doesn't mean that I'm not in favor of reinterpreting the character. Um, I think that in at least on the big screen, I watched Batman v Superman. I wasn't super thrilled with it, but I think that right now is a good opportunity to do something like Batman Beyond and make Bruce Wayne even older and have a young protege come on board. And I think that it also is a is a great way to bring Batman into a different genre because instead of being a noir, you know, gritty, realistic uh, detective, you could have a futuristic Blade Runner type Batman um, with really advanced technology that could appeal to people who are really into, you know, what what Tony Stark and Iron Man can do, because you can push it uh, even further by saying, well, he has all this advanced technology, so he can, you know, he can actually fly his jet boots or whatever. So I think that going, going into the future, that's something that I would like to see, because it gives them at least on the big screen, it would give them uh, a new way to express what is Batman without necessarily giving up the the, the core of what makes this character a good character and what we like about the character. Absolutely. I think Batman Beyond and that sort of exploration of, of Bruce Wayne no longer able to do a job that he was born to do and kind of taking a backseat is really, really interesting. Uh, for me, I, I too gravitate strongly towards the animated series, but... I like a simple Batman. I like a Batman who who is fighting crime at like a criminal level. I, I don't necessarily want Batman to defuse nuclear bombs or to be involved in like international stuff. I like Batman to feel pretty grounded and feel pretty connected to the street level crime that defined him mm-hmm. as a as a child. Again, I'm so fascinated by the fact that this character is rounding out its 80th year in 2000 i guess it'll be 2019 would be 80 years and how much the character has changed and i mean ultimately is there a wrong batman i mean batman in any form is batman and that's fascinating i am i am curious like and again we may never get to this point 
when the mega national corporations take over and rule everything more so than they already do, uh, copyright law will just be will just be in perpetuity, right? Um, so Batman will be just a constantly shifting thing to meet our uh, our consumer needs in this dystopian future. Mm-hmm. I'm painting, yep. but. <laughs> I wonder, like, you know, if we could go forward a thousand years when people are, well, uh, American mythology, you had character, you had the, uh, the folk hero Batman. Like, I wonder what that folk hero Batman looks like. Yeah. Like what, what is that boiled down most essential stuff? I don't know. I think it's, it's, it's kind of fun to see when like a person's headcanon becomes just regular canon as like a writer or as a creator, when your reinterpretation or your ideas about it get to go to that next level and you know i mean every filmmaker's take on batman is so different and they're all valid you know like win lose or draw like whether you like it or not they're all valid and i think that's really interesting that the character has such flexibility to be interpreted in so many different directions absolutely and i you know i hope that it is something that continues into the future i i i don't i i would i would prefer to have a variety than to have one a settled upon yeah one one kind of stodgy option that everybody is okay with more or less like i've been advocating for a return to like you know the 1960s tv style i think that that could be a really nice break i i I admittedly haven't watched it yet but i've heard a lot of really great things about the lego batman movie that came out earlier this year um which was just that it's fun a very comedic take on the on the same character and all of the villains in the world and so that's that's something that really excites me i i more more batman more interpretations of batman and let's you know let's really let some creative people loose and see see what they their take is on it absolutely and i think i think there's something really essential in what you're talking about there that comics can be fun yeah it doesn't have to be depressing and really violent all the time it's been a long time but sometimes no i think we could in general we could use more fun in our comic books Thanks for listening. If you disagree, have alternative headcanons, a headcanon you'd like us to talk about, or just want to say hi, drop us a line at looseheadcanonpod at gmail.com. We want to thank our awesome engineer slash producer, Boki. Our theme music is by Checkmate, so huge thanks to him as well. For more of his music, check out soundcloud.com slash checkmate underscore official. And we want to thank you for listening. Subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and please, above all else, if you like the show, tell your friends to check us out too.